that's all I got in terms of preliminaries. Uh, we are going to be turning to God's Word and digging into that. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open them to the book of Nahum. If you, do, if you don't, there's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you can t- turn to page 782. It's right up there. We're going to be reading from Nahum 1, 1 to 8, on page 782. Because we believe God is speaking, uh, when we read his word, one of the things we've grown in the habit of doing is standing as we read God's word. So let's stand together. Nahum 1, 1 to 8. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Yahweh is a jealous and avenging God. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Yahweh is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Please be seated as we pray. God, we come before you understanding that our un- aware that our understanding of you is limited and skewed and even we who perhaps have our theology right about you in our hearts and our minds don't grasp you for all that you are so i ask that by your spirit you would teach us much of you today We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the days when there were castles and dungeons, moats and damsels in distress, wizards and knights, a mother and her young child are cowering in a cellar. You see, in their little village, a dragon has come. A fierce and terrible dragon that no one can tame, no one can defeat. And he has cast his dark shadow over the village. Whenever the sound of his wings starts sounding, the villagers run for shelter. No one can handle the fury of the fire of his mouth. His talons sink deep into the flesh of men and all cower before him. So, 
The sound of his wings has begun, and the mother and the child have run for shelter into the cellar, and they're kneeling there. And the mother offers this word of hope to her child. She says to her, There is a new king, and he is loving and gracious and kind and good and generous. And the little girl looks up, her saucer eyes revealing the fear that is in her eyes. And she says to her mom, That's all well and good, mom, but can he slay the dragon? Can he slay the dragon? It's precisely the right question, isn't it? And that's the question that Nahum answers right out of the gate for Israel, who is under the dark shadow of Assyria and their capital, Nineveh. Look what he says right out of the gate in verse 2. Yahweh is a jealous God. Now, we often think of jealous, we kind of have a negative connotation for jealousy, right? It's, it's that Shakespeare's green-eyed monster that, that uh, sees on suspicion and, and selfishness. But there's actually a right kind of jealousy. Think, for example, of, of a husband. He's been married for a couple decades, perhaps. And someone comes and informs him that his wife has been unfaithful to him with another man. Now, if the husband were just shrug his shoulders and say, oh, well, we would question whether that husband really did love his wife. Or we'd say, there's something that's not right with that response. Because if he truly loves his wife and has entered into covenant with her and cares for her, then he is going to be brokenhearted over what's gone on, and he's going to do what he can to win back his wife and to secure her allegiance again to him. You see, there is a, there is a way of, of, of being jealous that is, that is right and good. And that's the kind of jealousy being talked about here. It's God saying, I love my people with a jealous kind of love. God has entered into a covenant relationship with his people. The closest thing we have to a covenant today is when a husband and wife stand before one another and before God and witnesses and make vows to one another. It's an idea of an exclusive commitment. And God is jealous of that covenant. He is committed to his people. And he says, I expect your allegiance and I give you my protection. And throughout the Old and New Testament, you see this, this, this jealousy of God that he says, I will not allow my people to go running after other lesser gods. He is a king who, because of his jealous love, has vowed to protect his people from the damaging influences of others, who has said, I will not allow their allegiance to go to a lesser king who will do them harm. He is a king who loves his people with a jealous kind of love. 
and he's also vengeful. Did you pick up on that when I was reading? It was kind of like, whew, a little intense. Three times in verse 2, it talks about him as avenging. He's a jealous and avenging God. Yahweh's avenging. And he takes vengeance on his adversaries. And even in verse 2, there's also two other references to his wrath. He's avenging and wrathful. He keeps wrath for all his enemies. Even down in verse 6, it talks about his wrath and his anger. So, what do we do with this God who's a God of vengeance? Again, we often think of vengeance with a negative connotation, right? Kind of spite. I think of it our family, uh, um, a, a fairly standard response when somebody from our children, when, when, uh, when somebody does something they don't like, you'll hear this phrase. Fine then, I'm not going to let you play with my whatever it is, fill in the blank. And we've been teaching our kids, we're not a family of revenge. That's not, that's not the ethos of our family. We don't use the word ethos with them. <laughs> but we teach them that, that's not how we operate, right? We're not a family of vengeance. But the kind of vengeance here being talked about is not the kind of vindictive tit-for-tat, juvenile style of the playground. Rather, this is a, a noble, a royal vengeance that says, I will avenge those who threaten the peace of my kingdom. It's a resolve within the king to say, I'm going to deal with those who poison the waters and threaten the stability of the village. We say that our family is not a family of revenge. But in a certain proper sense, there is a level of vengeance that we as parents have in the, in the right biblical sense. If somebody were to try and harm my family, I am going to take deliberate action to protect them. And I want my wife and my children to know that I am there to protect. And they don't need to be scared because, of, because I'm there. Even at a, at a lesser level, we want our kids to know when there is something that's really mean that's been done by one of your siblings to you, mom and dad will take care of it. And the retribution or the consequences that are necessary for that will be taken. Why? So that you don't have to worry about taking revenge yourself. You can trust that mom and dad are going to handle it in a right way so that you are free to just be gracious and forgive your sibling and keep playing. Works perfectly. <laughs> but I'd say God is, is like that. He says that to us, too, in terms of how we relate to one another. Look, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, so that we don't have to be vengeful people so that we can be gracious and kind. God will deal with sin and wrongdoing. Evil will be paid back. God will take care of that. It's not for us to do it. We can trust our Heavenly Father to do that. So we have a king that will avenge those who threaten the peace of his kingdom. 
We have a king who will not tolerate those who jeopardize the stability of his kingdom. He will punish his adversaries. He will keep his wrath for his enemies. There is no sugarcoating verse 2. It's a strong statement about God. He is mighty, and he will not tolerate evil. His goodness does not permit him to tolerate evil. So he avenges. But lest we get the wrong idea from verse 2, Nahum adds verse 3. Yahweh is slow to anger. Yahweh is slow to anger. Now that that phrase might ring a bell for, for you who've been here regularly as we've been preaching through Jonah and Nahum. Because Jonah said the very same thing about God. He's slow to anger. In fact, um, as we saw in the book of Jonah, that phrase comes originally from Exodus 34 where Yahweh reveals himself and reveals his character and he talks about himself as a, a God who's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in mercy, but who will punish wrongdoers. And that idea, that concept of God as being slow to anger, abounding in mercy, is pervasive throughout the Old Testament. It's almost a creed of the Old Testament that talks about who God is. He's not, he's not an impulsive uh, God who, who is just looking to, to punish on a whim the first scent of disobedience and he's going to throw down his lightning bolts. I think of uh, one of the reformers who said this, God is ready to pardon. He descends not to wrath except when he is constrained by extreme necessity. Escape then shall none of those who allow themselves the liberty of abusing his patience. As a mother at the beginning of our sermon said, he is kind and gracious. Now, Nahum has been clear. God is also jealous and vengeful. He deals with evil. But those things notwithstanding, at his core, God is a God who is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. But, as our verse says, he will by no means clear the guilty. Now God's slowness to anger, his abounding in steadfast love, for the, for the readers of Nahum's day, is the very trouble. Right? They look around and they say, Nineveh is this evil, horrible nation. They're doing horrible, horrible things. We live in their shadow. We live in constant fear of them. God, you say you're vengeful and jealous for us, but why is Nineveh still there then? And the answer has to do with the character of God. He is going to deal with evil, but he is patient with sinners. As the New Testament teaches us, he is eager to see all come to repentance. 
and he delays desiring people to come to him. Sometimes we get asked, how could a good God allow such horrible things to happen in this world? And it starts to deal with the answer to that question. God will deal with evil. Evil will not go unpunished. He will by no means clear the guilty. And yet, God is slow to anger. He's patient. He desires even the most vile and wicked to come to repentance, as we saw in our study in Jonah. But, lest we miss the point, Nahum adds, not just that he's slow to anger, but that he is great in power. Great in power. We serve a strong God. You want to see just how strong he is? Nahum says. Well, listen to how nature responds to him, starting in verse 3 and going through verse 5. You know, other, others in that day, how they get from here to there would be by chariot or steed. But not Yahweh. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. God travels by gale and tempest. And then Nahum says, all right, you want to get a sense of how big and mighty God is. Think of a man running along a dirt path and the dust that he's kicking up from his footsteps. Now go out on a cloudy day and look at those massive billowing clouds. If you get a sense of scale, those clouds are like just the dust of his feet. And look what happens when he walks when he walks into an area, when he comes into a near area in his presence, it says that the seas, the one thing that just seems like they have an endless amount of water contained within them, dry up. And a river, just a constant flow of water, right? It's amazing. It's like how much, it just keeps pouring water and pouring water. It runs and runs and runs. Dry before him. What is by its nature wet when it responds to its presence becomes dry? Bashan and Carmel, two areas known for how lush they are, how, how overrun with growth and, and beauty they are. Lebanon, known for its, its strong cedars, its great trees. They wither before him. See the reversal? What is lush in his path withers. And then, if you think of the very things that seem the most stable, a mountain, a great hill, immovable, it says, in his presence, they're like snow, or wax and just melt. 
things that are most stable in his presence melt away. When you, uh, when you watch a movie and there's kind of this big ominous villain out there, you can tell the monster or whatever it is is coming into town because there starts to be kind of this rumble, right? There's a shaking, there's sounds. You know the terrible, powerful monster is near. I think these reversals give, give that sense. He travels by tempest and gale. The clouds are but the dust of his feet. And everything before him just melts away, gives way. His very nature is changed in his presence. In fact, the end of verse, um, verse 5 there says that the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. In other words, the whole world, the whole earth is quaking before him. The whole earth and everything and everyone is like a, a leaf in an earthquake. Sh- shaking, 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 shaking. That is a picture of God that Nahum gives us. Jealous. Vengeful, patient, but powerful. What does this picture of God do to the anemic view of God that is so common amongst us as Christians today? We say in our theology, God is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. But we live as if he's impotent. I think we need the corrective of the book of Nahum. As I've been praying through this passage, my own heart has been convicted at how small our view of God is. For God is not the mighty God of the scriptures. We need the corrective that Nahum gives us. I need the corrective corrective that Nahum gives us. So, if if God is this God described here, if He is jealous, if He is vengeful, if He is, though patient, powerful, who can stand? Who can stand before Him? Which one of us, if if He's coming, is going to volunteer to go and have the face-to-face meeting with this God thus described? Look at verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The answer is nobody. That's the short answer. The more nuanced answer is nobody with whom he could be angry. Nobody can stand before him. Like the fire that poured down on Sodom, God will pour out his wrath down on any and all who deserve it. As Martin Luther 
uh, rendered Psalm 130. It sa- he said, if thou, Lord, iniquities dost mark, our secret se- sins and misdeeds dark. Oh, who could stand before you? This picture of the mighty God and then the question, who, who can stand? None of us can stand. His wrath is poured out like fire. It's building like, like a crescendo. If you're thinking of this in musical terms, as he builds from verse 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, the music is getting fuller and louder and more powerful. It builds to this, this height. Who can stand? His wrath is poured out like fire. And then out of the blue, verse 7, totally unexpected, Yahweh is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. If it was was a musical piece and it had just built a crescendo and then all of a sudden the music goes silent, it's complete change. Have you ever been listening to music and it does that? It's a common, common trick used in all sorts of music. You know, they build to crescendo and then just back out. And it gets your attention. It causes you to sit up and take notice. This is important, what's happening right here. And that's exactly the case here. It's, it's, uh, it's drawing our attention to what's there in verse 7. And I'd say it's telling us that this, verse 7, is the essence of this whole passage, 1, 1 through 8. You know, last week we kind of did an introduction to the book of Nahum. And uh, I, I described this, uh, this person who, dis- who, who talked about her relationship with God. And she said, it's, I think of God as kind of just giving me this big, warm hug, warm embrace. And I said, no... That's not, though that's not a, an inaccurate picture of God. The picture of Nahum, the picture that we see of God in Nahum is not that God. He is a God who is a warrior God, whose arm is bare and whose sword is unsheathed. But here's what I think Nahum is telling us right here. It is precisely because he is the warrior God with arm bared and sword unsheathed, that his embrace is meaningful to us. Because when the dragon is flying about, wreaking havoc, it's not a comfort to run to an embrace that's a weak, impotent embrace that can do nothing about the dragon. Sure, mum, God could be kind, or the king could be kind and gracious. But can he slay the dragon? And what Nahum is saying here is to that little girl, he can slay the dragon. He can slay the dragon. And so, when he comes Put his arms around you and your mom 
you are in a safe place. And it is a good embrace. That's why he ends in verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies to darkness. It's because he is the mighty warrior that he is able to be our refuge. If you think about the book of Nahum, you have to have those two images together. He is the refuge. He is the strong tower. He is the one whose arms do embrace us with a warm and full and loving embrace. But that is a comfort to us because it's not just kind of this emotive, warm, fuzzy type of thing. It is a strong arm that loves us and holds us. So, That's what I think our passage is teaching us. But Nahum leaves us with a crucial question unanswered. You see, we talked about who can stand before him. We said, nobody. Nobody, because we're all sinners. And his anger is poured out towards sinners. He avenges evildoers. We all try his patience even though he is patient. And I think if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, I know for me, yeah, I might not be as bad as some other people. I'm certainly not as bad as I could be. But nonetheless, I know that I'm not perfect. I'm not a saint in that sense. We all realize that there's evil in us and pervasive evil. Evil that continues and presses on and presses on. So how can somebody who is one of those sinners, is an enemy of God because of my sin, how can God say to me, he's my refuge? Why is he willing to be that? It's not just a question unique to us today. You see, the people to whom Nahum wrote, the the, the Israelites of that day, were, were not the most holy and righteous generation of the Israelites. They had some pretty obvious sins of their own going on. It was easy for them to point their finger at Nineveh, but there was a lot going on within their own city and their own nation that was deeply flawed. In fact, that's one of the common critiques of Nahum. From those who like to critique the Bible, they'll say, what's wrong with Nahum? He's happy to critique Nineveh, but he doesn't mention anywhere the same types of sins going on within Judah. So how can he be our refuge and strength when we're guilty as well? Like much of the Old Testament, God intentionally leaves that question hanging, awaiting resolution. Wetting our appetites for what is to come. And of course, it meets its resolution. The appetite finds its course, its main course, in the person of Christ. Look with me, just turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. It's on page 942, if you're using the 
the Pew Bible. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. We find the answer to the question. Nine forty two, page nine forty two, chapter five, verse ten. Now, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. But Paul says, look, yeah, I get it, I get it. We are enemies of God because of our sin. We are those who deserve that vengeance. We, we have provoked his jealousy. So how can I be reconciled? How can I be back in that embrace? And how is it, according to verse 10? It is by the death of his son. Jesus took on the punishment that we deserve. He absorbed the fury of God's wrath upon himself on the cross. And he dealt with sin. He dealt with my sin. And he dealt with your sin. So that those who take refuge in Christ, who cling to Christ, can actually find Shelter in the Almighty God who is going to do something about evil. So, we are, we who are in Christ, we who have put our faith in Christ, can find refuge in this mighty God. We can experience the mighty warrior's embrace. I opened with a story, fanciful story about a dragon. I wonder, is there a dragon in your life? Maybe it's not as obvious as the Assyrians, or if you think of a despotic dictator, or oppressive system like slavery, maybe it's not so obvious, the dragon in your life. Maybe it's more subtle. Some form of evil, some evil thing that's been done to you or that you're in the midst of. But it's casting its dark shadow over your life. And so you hear the message of the Bible and the message of Jesus. And you hear about his grace and his love and his kindness. And you say, it's all well and good, mum but can he slay the dragon? The answer of the Bible is a resounding yes. Yes, he can slay the dragon. We know that because of how he dealt with Nineveh within 70 years. Great and powerful Nineveh completely leveled, never to rise again. 
We know that he can defeat the dragon because of what Jesus did in defeating sin and death on the cross. And then when you look at how the Bible ends, the book of Revelation, it describes an ultimate victory where God's kingdom finds its ultimate triumph. And in that book, you have Jesus slaying a dragon, a beast. The embodiment of evil in this world, Satan and his forces. And Satan is defeated by Christ. So, if Yahweh can defeat those dragons, Nineveh, sin and death, and the ultimate embodiment of evil, then he is stronger than whatever has its talons into you. Yahweh is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who are his who take refuge in him. Let's pray.